baby boomers, whether we are millennials, whether we are Gen X, whether we are Gen Z, or whether we are Gen Alpha. We are all in this together. So I remind you, stay tuned, work together. Thank you for listening to More Talk Radio on your community community radio station, KBOO-FM. I'm Cecil Prescott. Take care. Listening to KBOO Portland. Friday, March 1st at 8 p.m., KBOO makes everything metal. It's the Metal March, a special benefit show for KBOO Community Radio, featuring 10 hours of brutality from your favorite KBOO metal programs Oil for Kisses, The Metal Margin, The Last Hour, and Pandemonium, plus the return of former hosts of Heavy Metal Vomit Party. March 4th and support metal on KBOO. Text KBOO to 44321 or go to kboo.fm give to donate and tune in to the Metal March Marathon on KBOO. Friday, March 1st at 8 p.m. through Saturday, March 2nd at 6 a.m. Metal takes over the airwaves for the Metal March Marathon only on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Listen to Black Book Talk at KBOO-FM every first Thursday from 11.30 till noon. Co-hosts O.B. Hill, Patricia Welch, and Emma Jackson Ford discuss African-American authors and books. That's Black Book Talk every first Thursday from 11.30 till noon on KBOO-FM. This is Judy Collins, and you're listening to KBOO in Portland.
Good morning, and welcome to the Old Mold Variety Hour. You are listening to KBOO Portland. The music I'm playing is from a song by Mar Zane called Palestine Will Be Free. I'm Patricia Koberg, and I'll be your host this morning. Today, for the Mole's final broadcast during Black History Month, we feature a review by Larry Bolden of the novel A Love Song for Ricky Wilde, which looks back at the Harlem Renaissance. And Bill Resnick talks with Black author and activist Malik Mia about the Black workers organizing against their notorious anti-union boss Elon Musk at Tesla. To begin our show, Jan Hawkins speaks with Palestinian activist Shams Mahmoud about the activist vision for a free Palestine and the upcoming Palestinian Film Festival at Portland State University. Before we get rolling, I want to suggest that you check out some of the special programming KBU is offering for our winter pledge drive, All Thrills and No Frills, like, for example, the Black History and Future series that airs every Tuesday at 7 p.m. You can learn about this program and other specials at kboo.fm. And while you're at it, please consider a donation. KBU depends on listeners like you to keep community radio alive in Portland. You can donate by clicking on the donate button at kboo.fm or you can text KBOO to 44321, or mail us a check at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, 97214. While the genocidal war against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip rages on, Jan Hawken takes a pause with local PSU student and activist Shams Mahmoud to talk about the vision for a post-conflict Palestinian state and the celebration of Palestinian history and culture through the upcoming Palestinian Film Festival at PSU, March 1st through March 3rd. Here's Jan with Shams Mahmoud. Welcome Shams Mahmoud to the Old Mole Variety Hour here on KBU Community Radio. Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. Shams is working on her bachelor's degree in history at Portland State University with an emphasis on Middle Eastern and African studies. She is president of Students United for Palestinian Equal Rights, or SUPER, a student-led organization dedicated to raising awareness about injustices concerning the occupation of the Palestinian people and calling for Palestinian liberation, self-determination, and right of return from the river to the sea. Well, once again, thank you for coming on to the Old Mole Variety Hour today to talk about the organizing of SUPER, as well as the Palestine Film Festival at Portland State University, organized by SUPER and other campus student groups. The screenings will be at the Fifth Avenue Theater during the first weekend of March, free and open to the public. Um, Before we take up the festival and the films that will be screening Uh, Let's talk about Students United for Palestinian Equal Rights, which has chapters on other campuses in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Tell us about SUPER and the the group's vision of liberation for Palestine, as well as your approach to organizing. So SUPER is part of the National Students for Justice for Palestine. 
It has been revived after a few years of inactivity, but it's been on the Portland State campus for, I believe, uh, over a decade and a half now. Um, and our work right now and our work for a long time has been focused on removing our university's complacency in uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And right now we're very focused on specifically removing Boeing off of our campus. Why is the group focused on, on Boeing? Because there are many companies that are involved in co military contracts with the U.S. government and have been the focus of uh, pro-Palestine activism, including Intel. You know, there are other, other companies uh, that are part of this vast mm -hmm. military-industrial complex. Uh, why Boeing? Boeing specifically donates a lot of money to PSU. It has a lot of influence, um, especially regarding the PSU Foundation. Um, and they also have special internship um, recruitment deals. They call it a supply and chain management program where students are recruited to work for these companies and manufacture weaponry that go and kill um, people in Palestine, but also in the Philippines, Libya, Yemen. And it has a much larger presence on at PSU than other campuses specifically. So I think that Portland State has a special duty to cut ties with them. Whether or not they produce weapons material locally, that nationally Boeing as is a, one of the, you said the three largest military contractors military defense contracts with the U.S. And that's yeah. been, of course, a big focus of all of the uh, pro-Palestine organizing has been focusing on military, U.S. military support for Israel. Before, before we take up the festival and the films that will be screening and, and the importance of um, this, as I understand, second annual Palestine Film Festival in Pacific Northwest. Um, can we talk more about Super and the, the vision of liberation for Palestine, as well as your approach to organizing? I mean, there's both calls for a ceasefire, calls for an end to military support of Israel that's playing out in this horrific genocide unfolding and intensifying daily but there's also at stake a vision of the future and what Palestinian freedom would mean many of the proposals the two-state proposals that were promoted um, and some would say as a way of postponing a, a true um, vision of a free Palestine for decades mm -hmm. the Biden administration has tried to revive that idea of a two-state solution, but many say it's kind of um, not on the agenda in the same way it was part of organizing for decades. Mm -hmm. But then there's a question of what a one-state peace proposal would mean mm -hmm. for peoples that will continue to have to live together there, yeah. um, even if there is a successful end of the occupation and the war. Can you speak to that? What a what a one state proposal that is being discussed by academics as well as activists here and elsewhere around the world. 
So our vision for Free Palestine is, it, I think a lot of people have been saying ceasefire and then they stop at ceasefire and then want to go back to the status quo. The status quo was still ethnic cleansing. Um, so ceasefire is just the first step to um, pretty much end the rate of aggression that's going on, um, the rate of killing that's happening, but it is not the end goal. It's just the beginning. Uh, Similarly, yeah. with the war in Gaza ending, is not the only the only demand here. Yes, this is not the only demand, and our demand as a student group um, is in end to the occupation completely. And to me, when I hear like from the river to the sea is full liberation and right of return uh, for every Palestinian to go back to their indigenous homelands and. Again, one state solution would look to me very similar to what we see in South Africa um, post-apartheid. Um, everybody living together if they want to like be there and be respectful as long as there's no segregation, as there's no longer any checkpoints, no two-class societies. That is what a fully liberated Palestine looks like to us. Um, as long as Palestinians get a right of return and full um, liberation from the occupation. Yes. And, and as I understand it, the vision of one state with equal rights and respect and freedom for all is a rejection of proposals for two-state solutions that leave partitions in place where Gaza and East Jerusalem and uh, occupied West Bank Mm -hmm. are separated geographically as well as politically in ways that have strangled them from the start. And it mm -hmm. sounds like that for many critics of Israel ha remains a problem with many of the two-state solutions. That, yeah. Um, and, and that Israel has rejected those proposals and will continue to reject them likely. Mm -hmm. um, even the two-state proposals that are lamely put forth. We know that this two-state uh, quote-unquote solution would never ever work. Um, it also it reminds me of Armenia and what's going on in Artsakh right now. The Armenia is also kind of separated a little bit like Palestine is, or the, like the territories are right now. And there's also a current genocide there happening. When, when you separate groups in ways that preserve boundaries mm -hmm. that have deep histories, you're, it's not a true solution. Is that it's true? never a true solution. And yeah. we also need to remember that there are Palestinians living within so-called Israel um, in Nazareth, pretty much outside the West Bank, outside of Gaza, um, and they would be outcasted from like pretty much all of the rest of Palestine. It would just not work at all. Yeah, and I think, of course, the anxiety among some Jewish Israelis, perhaps the dominant population there, Israelis that have moved notably to the right since October 7, um, mm -hmm. the anxiety that becomes a basis for either censoring the phrase from the river to the sea or in Germany criminalizing it, the opposition is supported by this idea that that calling for free Palestine from the river to the sea means the 
genocide for Jewish Israelis or pushing Jewish Israelis out of that territory at all. So how would you respond to that, that anxiety that drives some of the opposition? My response to that is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is just not anti-Semitic. All that means is a one state liberated Palestine with everybody living equally and under the same laws, no segregation, no apartheid, no um, man-made separations. A lot of the the fears around that phrase um, might come from one's own projection because we see what's happening in Gaza and we see what a one state Israel looks like. um, And that is at the cost of Palestinian lives. I, I understand how they would think that, actually, actually I don't understand, but <laughs> I think they might believe that a one-state Palestine would be uh, what's happening right now there, but flipped around against the others. Which was a big part of the apartheid panic in preserving that regime, that if apartheid fell, and Black people were politically liberated, if the ANC gained power, they would kill all the white people mm-hmm. or banish all the white people. And so there's always that paranoia. And of course, there's a long-standing history of, of Palestinian resistance to the occupation that lends, I guess, some weight to that paranoia. But it's always part of these moments. And I suppose that the one state vision of a free Palestine that includes Jews, Muslims, secular people, uh, people of all ethnic identities and circumstances, that that feels like an impossible utopian dream, but so too seems to be the two-state solution. So maybe out of the horror of a crisis like this, um, visions that were seemed impossible Um, long ago. So let's turn to the film festival and what you see as a role of of film festivals in in the context of things that are so horrifying as people are in the grips of people are paying attention, see this endless images of unspeakable violence and horror that, you know, that include Famine, 90% of children in Gaza apparently um, are suffering from some form of malnutrition or food insecurity. Women who are pregnant can't give birth with with proper medical assistance. I mean, you know, the word goes on and on. So here we have a festival with films that provide, I think, a different picture of Palestinian life and culture. You are listening to KBOO Portland. We'll be back in a moment with more from Jan and Shams. If it's important to you to hear interviews like this, which feature local activists and cultural events, then please consider donating to KBU. During our All Thrills, No Frills winter campaign, we are hoping to raise $22,000. You can help by giving what you can today. To donate, click on the Donate button at kboo.fm or text KBOO to 44321 or mail us a check at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, 97214. The KBOO community thanks you for your generosity. 
Now, here's the conclusion of Jan Hawkins' interview with Palestinian activist Shams Mahmoud. Let's talk about two of the films that I had a chance to see that you're including in the festival. Um, one is Five Broken Cameras. The other is The Time That Remains. Both of them are guided by the filmmaker as a subject in the film, as well as guiding the camera itself. But Five Broken Cameras is much more of a a gritty kind of realist film, as well as a piece recognized as a piece of art as a film, um, but very different in style and clearly the, the production values behind it. The Time That Remains is much more kind of abstract, um, much more of a kind of classic art film um, in its approach, but also draws on the experience of the, the filmmaker in taking also a historical view of what's happening um, under occupation. And I'm sure as a history major, you have maybe a, an interest in that longer view of what's happening under occupation. Why are these two feature films in, included and in, I think featured in, in the weekend festivals? Both the films showcase two uh, different stories of Palestine. Um, they're, of course, both related. Uh, the first film, uh, The Time That Remains, details the, again, long, very long story of Alia Soliman and his own family's Nakba story. So it starts in, uh, in May 1948 in Nazareth, which is um, part of quote-unquote Israel. <laughs> It goes through his life, his family's life, through many different historical points uh, in Palestine's history, like the first Intifada, and I believe it ends in the second Intifada. Around when the uh, film was made and released in 2009, in that period of early 21st century, yeah. Whereas in Five Broken Cameras, the film is based in the West Bank and showcases life in the West Bank in a much shorter time span with a very, very different, very different characters. And different, <laughs> and different styles as well. Very different styles. I think Time That Remains was very West Anderson-esque. There was one scene I thought that was so funny in The Time That Remains, where there are all these Palestinians at a disco club, and the IDF jeep goes by declaring... A curfew. The curfew is at 10 o'clock. Curfew, 10 o'clock. And all of the dancers at the disco club, it was so loud they couldn't hear the, the curfew. And it was a very funny scene. And even the guy in the IDF Jeep started kind of swinging to the, or moving <laughs> to the sound of disco. And it, it was a very interesting scene in terms of how the occupier is at moments kind of seduced into the situation that he's participating in as an occupying force. There are a lot of wonderfully subtle, funny, but also tragic scenes in that film. There's one scene in particular, and I, I remember that scene in the, the nightclub in Ramallah where they were just completely ignoring them. And it really does showcase the difference between life in Ramallah and life in Nazareth, where in Nazareth, 
you would definitely have to obey and get home when you had to get home. Um, and Ramallah, it's not obviously like 100% safe, but it's, again, very different life. But as you were talking about that scene, it reminded me of another comic relief scene of a tank with a giant sniper pointer. I, I'm not sure what those are called. They look very phallic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, very big, very long, and a man was walking to his home or somewhere and they immediately just started following him with the sniper pointing it at him and he got on the phone and started teasing them pacing back and forth and they just kept following him over and over and over again uh it's it showcased a lot of the i don't know light-hearted or making fun of the occupation yeah and and five broken cameras there was also a creative use of the image of the camera itself it opens with the director showing these five cameras and over time each time he's involved in action one gets broken or crushed by the police repression and he comes back off with a better camera and it, it seemed like such a powerful metaphor for resilience when also your ability to see and document your moral responsibility to see and document what what is happening. I think that that film itself was a collaboration between a left wing Jewish film producer and the director. So I think both of them I think brought into focus the importance of alliances and collaborations, and that there was some success of the resistance in that township to the wall even though it was a very limited and modest success what was your take on that that period of many years of that community resisting the bulldozing of their olive trees and then the erection of that wall and then taking them to court and at least getting part of that wall removed it's a modest victory but clearly it was important to the filmmakers watching that scene kind of gave me hope for right now for what we're seeing in Gaza. And I also see videos of Gazan children, Gazan adults talking about like, this isn't over. After this, we will build on the destruction. We will build off the rebels. We will not give up. And that kind of determination, that sense of hope reminds me to never be defeatist, that it only hurts the cause. It only hurts Palestine more to have that like nihilist mindset and just to maintain hope and even small victories they are impactful well your work is so important and I look forward to um, the film festival the first weekend in March because they in addition to showing these interesting and important films they also provide a time for discussion and where people can raise raise questions and come together in a in a joyful way, as well as uh, a way that recognizes the the horror unfolding in Gaza and the occupied territories. In closing, say a little bit about how people can learn more, maybe give more of the details of what, when, and where with the festival. So to learn more, you can follow us on Instagram at PSU underscore super for any updates on the film festival as well as other events that we have. If you are a student at PSU, if you click on our link in the bio, you, there's an interest form that will 
take you to get uh, in contact with the rest of Super so you can meet fellow pro-Palestine students and join the liberation movement. And so the, the films will be, as I understand it, they'll be at the Fifth Avenue Theater, a student-led theater on campus on Fifth Avenue. What are the dates? The Palestine Film Festival will be March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Uh, the movies that we have currently showing is Time That Remains, Five Broken Cameras, as well as probably one other film, and I Am From Palestine. The films will probably be screened in the evenings? They will be screened at the evenings at Fifth Avenue Theater at Portland State. Okay, I'm free and open the public. You can't beat that. <laughs> well, uh, Shams Mahfoud, thank you so much for being with us today on the Old Mall. And keep up the good work. And we hope to have you uh, on the show again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great talk. was a clip from the soundtrack to The Time That Remains, featuring a piece called Doa El Shark by Mohammed Abd El Wahab. Before that, Jan Hawken was speaking with Palestinian activist Shams Mahmoud. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Next up, Larry Bolden reviews a 2024 novel by Tia Williams called A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. Through a magical interweaving of time, Williams crafts a love story that plays out in our contemporary time while revisiting the glory and the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance. As usual, I'm going to read Larry's review for him. Ricky Wilde is 28 years old. Her sisters, Rashida, Regina, and Ray, were born a year apart. Fifteen years later came Ricky, and she is a rebel. Wild Funeral Homes is a national chain started by Ricky's father. Her sisters have done as expected and each manages one or more of the funeral homes, but Ricky wants to start her own flower shop in Harlem. Quote, her whole life Ricky's sisters had roasted her for being too flighty, too messy, too much, and she pretended not to care but it secretly stung. It plagued her 
the fear that her personality would test the patience of everyone she knew, unquote. This oddly lovely little novel is, at once, a love story, an exploration of Harlem during the heyday of the Harlem Renaissance, and a fantastical journey through time. It is really two love stories, the first between Ricky and a pianist, Ezra Breeze Walker, and the second between Ricky and Ms. Della, the owner of the brownstone in which Ricky creates her dream flower shop. Ms. Della is in her late 90s, and though she has told no one, she is dying of cancer. Ricky first intends to call her shop Botany Flowers lately, but discovers she cannot trademark a question, so she settles for wild things. She does most of the work of creating her shop by herself, and its opening is quite successful. But after the first few weeks of curiosity seekers, she begins to find it difficult to find enough customers for her expensive floral designs. As a sales strategy, she begins to place the expensive arrangements she can't sell out of her shop at places that once housed the glitzy night spots of the Harlem Renaissance, photographing them and putting them up on Instagram. Soon, she has thousands of followers. Breeze Walker is a mysterious and incredibly handsome man Ricky first meets in a small public garden and then begins to run into over and over again as she practices her love of being a flaneuse in Harlem. Ms. Della is a fascinating character who more or less adopts Ricky as a granddaughter. She is still in mourning for her deceased husband, Dr. Bennett. Quote, my condolences, ma'am. I hope he went peacefully. Well, he went ironically. Ma'am? Dr. Bennett was a neurologist specializing in narcolepsy. He died in his sleep. Bravely, she thrust her chin upward. My husband always had a lively sense of humor. End quote. The mysterious Breeze Walker, a once famous pianist who no longer plays, was a sharecropper who had managed to escape the South. Quote, Breeze escaped in 1917 when he was drafted to the all-Negro 93rd Infantry Division and stationed in France during World War I. It was a brutal business but better than home because he was valued and under the command of the French troops, his unit was spared the senseless rage of white American men drunk on a racial lie they'd invented. It had never occurred to him that white people weren't the same everywhere. And when it all ended, Breeze returned home a decorated soldier. It was June 1919, and he was a changed man. He hoped America had changed too. Later, the papers would call this season the Red Summer. All over the country, white mobs unleashed horrific violence on colored communities, proving a point to uppity soldiers who dared hope for equality. End quote. I'm not going to say too much about the fantastical elements in this novel. Suffice it to say that readers will be called on to suspend disbelief. I found it difficult to do so, but was rewarded by the effort. Tia Williams has obviously done her historical homework, and the novel would be worth reading just for the historical insights into the music and sights of Harlem. The dual love stories 
display her compassion and her ability to make the pages come alive. There is humor and pathos in this fine novel. I have been talking about Tia Williams' 2024 novel, A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. This is Larry Bolden for the Old Mole Variety Hour. And I'm Patricia Kohlberg, reading today for Book Mole, Larry Bolden. Hello, Dolly. This is Louis Dolly. But let him you back when you feel down. You look it swell, Dolly. I kid him, Dolly. You keep going, keep going, just stay going down. Yeah, bro. That, of course, was Louis Armstrong with his classic song, Hello, Dolly. To close our show, Bill Resnick speaks with longtime author and labor activist Malik Mia about the prospects for black workers at Tesla, who recently sued their boss, Elon Musk, for a long-standing pattern of racial discrimination. Could this be a warm-up for a union drive at Tesla? Let's hear what Bill and Malik Mia have to say. Hello, Malik Mia. Welcome again to KBOO. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back with you. You do an important show. Malik Mia is a longtime black rights and revolutionary socialist and labor activist. Made his living as an aviation mechanic when he industrialized after college with thousands of other young people. Industrializing in an effort to organize working people towards a fighting union and that plant, and ultimately a democratic country run by the producers. Everything then seemed possible in the 60s and 70s, and uh, it's also possible now. In addition, he began writing. He's written hundreds of articles and co-written the books, The Assassination of Malcolm X, Angola, The Hidden History of, of Washington's War, and he contributed a chapter to the book, The National Black Independent Political Party, An Important Step Forward for Blacks and Other American Workers. He recently wrote an article titled Black Workers Sue Tesla Over Systemic Racism. Those workers were in Tesla's Fremont, California, electric car plant. Fremont is southwest of San Francisco. At the end of that article on racism and on Tesla and on Elon Musk and uh, worker fight back, you suggested that this could be a prelude to a UAW, that's the United Auto Workers, of them putting forces into assisting the Fremont workers to organize in the auto workers union. That coming possible struggle over unionization, it ends the interview. First, though, Mayan, tell us about the current struggle. What are blacks fed up with? How has Tesla handled complaints? How did blacks also, others in the plant, the radicals, how did they challenge the uh, Tesla? Well, I think it's important to recognize that this particular plant in Fremont has a long history of unionism and workers resisting the employers. It was originally for decades a General Motors plant, and then it became a joint venture with Toyota, GM and Toyota. 
in the UAW with the union inside the plants. When the, the auto crisis hit in uh, 20 years ago, GM decided to pull out, and then eventually the plant was bought by Tesla. And it was bought on the basis that it would be non-union. So most of the workers who had been used to a union were no longer employed. But the consciousness it wasn't gone because in the Bay Area, there's a higher pro-union consciousness in a lot of places. So the Tesla workers who got people got hired were, you know, had some consciousness about labor, even if they weren't unionized. So they've always wanted, many of them have always wanted to unionize, but because of Elon Musk and the management who was hostile to labor unions, I mean, extremely hostile, that wasn't possible. Even though the UAW had tried to uh, begin campaigns in the past, the point I was trying to make in the article was that in light of these lawsuits by uh, black workers who face extreme racism at the plant, filing legal action with the EEOC federally and then with the California same body, uh, Fair Employment and Housing, it showed the potential to bring back a union. So that that's the context. And the workers there, like everywhere else, you know, we're in a high-cost area in California. So if you're making an average of, say, 18 to $20 an hour, which is what production workers start out at Tesla, you know, you're talking 40, 42,000. In comparison, San Jose, San Francisco, most of the Bay Area, household income, you need to even rent an apartment, a decent apartment, you need at least one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty thousand a year. So they were, you know, unless you had your, you know, both partners working full time and making overtime, you couldn't even afford to not just not buy a home, but even to get a decent apartment. So that's some of the pressure. And the workers who got the most discrimination, of course, black and Latino. So Mus, who comes from South Africa, originally understood that, and he would use that tactic even in his plan. You are listening to KBOO Portland. We interrupt this very interesting interview about the black worker challenge to the racist practices of Tesla boss Elon Musk to talk to you about KBOO's All Thrills, No Frills Winter Pledge Drive. KBOO brings you music and public affairs programming that you simply will not hear on commercial radio. That's what KBOO is here for, to give voice to the diverse communities that make up our city and region. To support the incredible work that KBOO does, please donate. Every contribution, big and small, counts. If you are able to donate, click on the Donate button at kboo.fm or text KBOO to 44321 or mail us a check at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, 97214. Thanks to all of you who have given so generously in the past. Now, back to Bill in Malik. Give us an example of what they've done. Musk was once approached by a black worker when he was in the plant, and he, he was told that there's a lot of racism, and we've tried to uh, get some management response, but there hasn't been one. Musk's reply was, toughen up. But that doesn't apply uh, to everyone, because his attitude is basically, it's on you as the individual to deal with any issues. It's not It's not a problem of race or racism or sexism. It's, it's you, the individual. That's his attitude. And Elon Musk, and this is not just at Tesla, it's at his other companies like SpaceX, he expects the workers to work, you know, whatever is necessary to get the job done, 60, 70 hours a week, whatever. 
That's his attitude. But he also assumes that the minority workers are not the best at doing the job. So he, while he says it's an individual merit, he assumes that the black workers will not be best suited for certain jobs, and he will blame them for any problems they have. So people you know, who raise complaints, as I think I indicated in the article, they can face disciplinary action. There's no one to go to, and then you, can, you get fired, and so on. And he tries to pit the blacks against the Latinos, too, or the, in, in different uh, racial groups. That's part of his method as well. And I, I personally believe, I mean, I don't have proof, but I think by all indicators, it comes from his background as a South African white guy who was raised in apartheid South Africa. That's before apartheid was overturned, which was then he had already left the country. Apartheid was formally overthrown in 1990. He left the country in 89 because he didn't want to go into the military. So his entire young life was in a system based on divisions between whites and all the other racial groups. Yeah. The white yeah, he, may, he may think that they're doing a favor hiring any blacks. Yes. And they put blacks, I mean, one of the things that they've done, there's an area of the uh, Fremont plant, it's dirty, it's in right. winter, very, very cold, it's the hardest work, it's called the plantation, and it's just right. full of blacks. There's a few other groups there. And it's the hardest work and most physically draining. Right. And that reminds me like of the earliest industrialization of the United States where the bosses used to put Italians in one, blacks weren't even hired, of course, right. uh, Italians right. in one area of the factory and Swedes in the other. And, they, yes. and then what they would do is gin up sort of racist stuff about each of them. <laughs> to keep them fighting amongst each other. It was a deliberate way of making sure that they don't organize. Yes. Well, and it goes further than that, because even if you work hard and you meet all the criteria, very few you know, management-type jobs are available to the black employees. Very few skilled trade jobs are available. So it goes beyond just the basic production, as they call it, the plantation area. Well, what if you want to get promoted? It was very hard to get promoted to take on other positions. And that's, you know, the way it used to be in all industries. That only changed after the civil rights movement uh, began to change the laws. I mean, I remember in the airline industry, you know, you didn't have your first black pilots until the 70s. There were pilots even in Vietnam in the 60s, but they couldn't get a pilot job at the big airlines. Why was that? Pure racism. Uh, <laughs> did the same thing in, the, in these plants. Who were the engineers? Who got to different positions? You know, he would hire some, obviously, not the same as the pre-civil rights era, but it was very limited. So that was part of the, the ongoing discrimination. So anyhow, that, but his, his mindset I wanted to emphasize is not just, he's just like any other boss. All capitalist bosses function that way toward the workforce. They don't care about equality and merit. But he was more extreme because I think he had a purely apartheid-type racist mentality toward his workers. And he implemented it. As you said, dirtiest and hardest jobs were the yeah. blacks. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the fish, uh, uh, fish rot from the head. Um, right. And his views on everything, including race and unions and their hiring practices, as in some ways they are, for sure, they're not part of the diversity and, and inclusion no. effort. 
No. no anyway, the, the agencies, you know, the Employment Occupation Agencies, the discrimination fighters in government, the EEOC and its cognate in California, they do have a, a lot of powers. And they can demand back pay, future pay, rehiring, promotion, policy changes, training. And then they have some that even big money comes in, like damages for emotional distress and attorney's fees and costs, yes. legal costs. They have a lot of power. But my sense is, and we talked earlier, they don't use it. No. Why is that? What these, these agencies are in a vice. First of all, the people in these agencies who really would like to do that are also many times have their hands tied behind their back. Because the agency, their bosses in the government, whether it's the Democratic Party-run government or Republicans are very anti-labor, so you don't even expect anything. But they're concerned about what the employers want to do. So while they may tell them they will do a fine, and most companies are willing to pay the fine. They don't like it. But if they don't have to admit guilt, that's a big part of settlements. If you don't have to admit guilt, but you agree that something was done they should have been compensated, and you pay a compensation, and you promise to improve things in the future, that's what these agencies tend to do. They will rarely ever force the companies to change the practices immediately, and rarely do they want to force people to be hired back. Okay, These are class action suits, which are different. If it was just an individual, they may bring the person back. Class action means the whole group. It could be 1,000 people. It could be 500. It could be 4,000 over the years. The first EEOC complaint was in 2015 as a class action. So you could be talking thousands of people. They're not going to do that. They're not going to force any employer to uh, rehire a lot of people. If it's one individual or two or three, they may. Generally, they seek to make a compromise. And I say this not just because of this case. I say this from my own experience in the airline industry where I was a union uh, representative. You always ran into that problem. How far were they willing to go? And they basically were told you got to make a deal with the company. And then you left it up to the employees involved in the suit. So they have what I call self-limitations, self-imposed limitations on how far they're willing to go. It can happen, yeah. but it's hard because you. what they really should be doing is really paying a heavy penalty, these companies, but they try to limit it. So government agencies rarely will go as far as they should. Yeah, that's true of all of them. And in fact, looked at from another perspective, those agencies are a channel into which people are asked to uh, channel their anger um, yes. and dissipate it instead of, in fact, wanting to, you know, unionizing and fighting back in that way, and you know, sort of a massive revolt. People are asked to sort of bring their individual cases and then get frustrated in long delays. Companies always do that unless they're forced to. And in uh, most cases that I even mentioned that where you win something, it's where you have unions existing. They have more clout. If you don't have unions existing, then you're really dependent on the system and the lawyers you can hire to carry out the case. You know, you don't have as much clout if you don't have a bargaining agent and they're fighting for you. So even, yeah. even that, the best victories tend to be where you have unions carrying out these kind of cases, but most unions don't want to be in a prolonged battle either on issues of race. 
in racism. They see it as okay. It's not a real, you know, not an economic issue, and it's narrowly defined. So even the, in the unions, they they don't like these race-linked issues. In the end of your of your article, black workers sue Tesla over systematic racism. You point out, I quote, the suit is important for Tesla's black victims. It also opens the door to a future union drive based on the unity of black, brown, and white workers. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of that. What do you make of the talk? I mean, I don't think the UAW has officially announced that they're going to uh, try and add to the organizing drive that some Tesla workers are pursuing. What do you make of the... uh, well, the the after the UAW won with the big three with their strike a few months ago, uh, yeah. Sean saying the uh, president said he wants to organize not only at the major auto companies he wants to make inclu- that includes Tesla. He's actually said that. So I know mm-hmm. they have a new organizing committee in the UAW headquarters, which is in Detroit. that says they're going to provide them help. Now I don't know what that means, provide them help, but I know. That's the official position. And in light of the fact that the UAW did make some major gains in that strike because they did strike, I think it gives people more confidence. Now, Elon Musk has already said he's not going to have that happen. Uh, So we'll see. It will be a real battle. To force Tesla to unionize would be a big victory because he's one of the most anti-labor employers in the country. The Japanese and the European makers... Most of those owners came here because they were non-union, but they're used to unions in their home countries. So they're not like unaware of unions in their role. Tesla has never had a union. In fact, not not one of Elon Musk's companies have ever had a union. So he's like the old, go back to the days of Henry Ford before the union came in. He's he's like those kind of bosses. I will never let them in. <laughs> and he would fight them. And that's the stance he takes. I mean, in, in Sweden recently, they just... The whole workforce is unionized, and he he was willing to take a strike and shut down its facility in Sweden because they wanted to recognize the union. So he's rich enough that he could consider doing that. But I think he makes too much money off his Tesla cars, which is the only main factory he has, is in uh, Fremont, that he wouldn't do it. So I, I you know wouldn't surprise me if he tries to build a plant in Texas, which is where he's moved the company. Yeah, but the union side I think is real. I mean I think the new organizing committee that they're trying to set up, which has to be secret at this stage because they would get fired. I think it's real. I mean, I think it's a real thing. You know, when I've seen him talk about this, his main argument is that he pays people well, which he doesn't. I just told you the average production worker probably makes $40,000, which is like $20 an hour. And he always says he people become rich because I give them stock, which I don't, I don't have proof of that. But <laughs> he has a stock option plan. A lot of employers call it stock ownership, employee stock ownership. So supposedly people get some shares of stock, Tesla stock, if they make it through four years. Of they have to buy it, though. They have to buy it. Well, it's not clear. They get they have that in their 401k, but they also give them what they, they supposedly give you grants. But it's not much because I've checked different Tesla, you know, blog sites. You know, people have to write anonymously. They don't, you don't get much. It would be better if you had your own, you know, much higher wage. But that's part of what they do. They they give compensation, which mainly goes to management, by the way, those kind of plants. It mainly goes to management to buy their loyalty. But I'm talking about the production workers. 
If they get five or ten shares of stock a year, I would be surprised. It would be a real battle. Yeah. And, yeah, his workers and, think uh, that they have another uh, leg up in working at Tesla because they're part of the electronics revolution, as yeah. if any of the production workers are ever going to be hired into some kind of technical job. They're always going to remain at the bottom of the barrel, and unless they, in fact, organize and demand their right to a living wage, they're not going anywhere. The colleges are full of now young people studying electronics and computers and all the rest of the stuff who are very interested in those all the white-collar jobs within those industries, and the average worker there is... Well, they're not going to train you. They're not going to train you. I mean, the main demand no. of the labor movement has always been you should have a right to be able to move up and get training. Yeah. And even and that's they're not going to do that. Yeah. No. And indeed, they're they're on the assembly lines, right? That's, yes. Yeah. Um, basically, somewhat humanized assembly lines, not quite as bad as the GM in the early days, but there's still assembly lines. Yeah. What you're, you're learning yeah. how to do is turn bolts and attach computer mechanisms in the car. It's nothing like anything that people can't learn in a, in a day or two. Yeah. Anyway, it was good talking to you, Malik. Yeah. Um, it's a, this could be in a very important labor battle if it gets to that stage for the whole country. I do believe that because you've taken yeah. on the richest guy in the world. You're taking on the whole concept of a, you know the new industry, which is a EVs. To all the big companies are, you know, organizing plants, and you have a, a large workforce that, if it could force into a union plant, it would set important standards for the whole industry. So it's more than just organizing an unorganized plant. I think it's it's got broader significance. That's why it's important that if it reaches the stage of a real battle, people should watch it and support it. Yeah, Malik Mia, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks a lot, Bill. I'm glad to be on this show. I think it serves a very important purpose, getting people to see things from a, uh, not just a working class point of view, but from a, a socialist point of view on the issues of race and class. And I think this kind of show is extremely important to be listened to each week. Well, thank you, Mia, for those kind words. Take care. Yeah. That was Bill Resnick speaking with Malik Mia about black workers organizing at Tesla. A link is posted on our webpage for the show to the article in International Viewpoint by Malik Mia titled, Black Workers Sue Tesla Over Systemic Racism. And that's a wrap for our show today. I'm Patricia Kohlberg, and I've been your host for the hour. Thanks to Moles, Jan Hockham, Bill Resnick, and Larry Bolden, and our special guests, Shams Mahmoud and Malik Mia. Thanks as well to John Nelson for his editing assistance and a shout-out to the hard-working staff at KBU. One way for you to say your thanks would be to support KBU by contributing to our $22,000 goal for our winter fun drive, All Thrills and No Frills. KBU is 55 years old, one of the oldest community radio stations in the country, but it's up to you to keep us on the air. If you can, Please donate by going to kboo.fm and clicking on the Donate button. You can also text KBOO to 44321 or mail us a check at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, 97214. 
You, the listeners, make the old mold possible, and we are grateful for your ongoing support. Next week, join us for an update on Portland Street response, the racially segregated 911 response in Arizona, and a new episode of Another World is Possible. Until then, stay safe and stay active. I'm going to go out with a little more from the composition Doa El Shark by Muhammad Abd El Wahab. Thanks for listening. You are tuned into listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Community Radio during this special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and